Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson. Today, we are going to do another one of our division previews, and we're going to go with the Atlantic Division. So I've brought on two of our Atlantic Division writers, Jordan Klingman and Luke Hickey, Jordan for the Raptors and Luke for the Knicks. So Jordan, how are you doing today? I'm a little triggered by Sports Illustrated's ranking of DeMar DeRozan of 36 right now. And Luke, how about you? Um, I'm also in an incredibly spiteful and triggered mood at the ranking of Lonzo Ball over Carmelo Anthony, but um, that's another story. Yeah, well, we will get to Carmelo Anthony at length, certainly, but let's start with the team that made the biggest move of the offseason, despite being a lot more quiet than I think most people expected up until that point. The Boston Celtics... And probably their most important move is also the one that has gotten the least talked about in recent weeks and months. The trade of Markel Fultz, basically the number one pick at the time, but Markel Fultz, for Jason Tatum and a future pick was, I think, a really interesting and somewhat strange move by the Celtics because... Granted, they did have an overload at guard, but when they took Jason Tatum, they turned that overloading at the guard positions into an overloading on the wing, which only got worse when they added Gordon Hayward. But what were you guys' thoughts on that number one overall pick trade that Danny Ainge made earlier in the summer? At the time, uh, I didn't really like it but i think now it looks a lot better because they have kyrie irving but i i think it i think it was interesting just how everything ended up this way yeah i also didn't quite know what to make of it at the time like it it just seemed like one of those more lateral sort of moves no no real clear-cut benefits or like real winners of the trade uh, when it first happened from what i've uh, read about jason tatum though um just the kind of wing player he is it seems like it'll uh, bring a degree of athleticism to the Celtics that they probably uh, didn't, or they probably lacked, I guess, in, in previous seasons. So that'll be interesting. But uh, yeah, at the time, I, I was just straight up confused, I think, by it. I think what also made it more confusing in hindsight is that when they had to clear cap space to sign Gordon Hayward, they moved another guard in Avery Bradley for another forward in Marcus. Morris. And even with the Kyrie Irving trade that came later in the summer, they still traded a point guard for a point guard. And granted, it's a little hard because nobody knows yet what Isaiah Thomas's injury status is. And I would not be surprised if say six months from now there are a bunch of reports coming out of Cleveland that the Celtics understated how severe the injury was even though that's been something that's been harped over and thrown about repeatedly since the trade it still seems a bit suspicious to me that the Celtics would be that willing to give up on Isaiah Thomas but I think another big question about this Celtics team is just how they'll be able to cope with the roster turnover that they will have going into next season. They're returning four players from last year's roster, and Marcus Smart is now the longest tenured Celtic, and he's still on his rookie deal, which is remarkable to me for a team that was the number one seed in their conference last season. I think they're going to probably start off slow out of the gate as... 
Uh, they work everyone together and figure out what lineups work the best. But I think in the end, they're probably slightly better than they were last year. The thing I'm wondering about is if they would have traded, offered to trade Avery Bradley, um, Jalen Brown, and then the Jason Tatum pick, could they have gotten Jimmy Butler? I find it hard to believe that they wouldn't have gotten Jimmy Butler. And granted, that brings along a whole other set of questions of whether you can really play Jimmy Butler and Gordon Hayward together. And I think you could just because they're both really talented and really good on both ends of the floor. It's hard to find a way to not have them fit. But that would be certainly a little bit stranger of a big three with Hayward, Butler, and Al Horford than what they currently have with a guard in Kyrie, a wing in Hayward, and a big man in Horford. Yeah, I think the one thing the Celtics... Uh, really lack now though is rebounding uh, I remember last year they struggled Horford's not a particularly a good rebounder for a big man um, they added Baines who I think will help but I think that's still their biggest hole and that's still something they need to address if they want to get over Cleveland let's move on to the Brooklyn Nets and they had a couple of big moves this offseason, one of which made a ton of sense to me, and the other of which I'm still struggling to wrap my head around. So the D'Angelo Russell trade, I think, was a huge win for Brooklyn, because Brooke Lopez was a wonderful net, and he will be sorely missed by anyone who followed the Nets, but he's also nearing his 30s on a team that isn't going to be good until 2020 at the earliest, and the Nets managed to turn him into an incredible asset of a young player who was the number two overall pick two years ago, and has actually been pretty decent for a young player in the last couple of years, who's just been overshadowed because... Carl Anthony Towns went right in front of him, and Chris Sesforzingas went two stops behind him. But what are you guys' thoughts on the Nets' D'Angelo Russell trade? I think it was it was a great trade for the Nets, and I don't think Mozgov is as bad as people think. I think his contract is terrible, but I think, like, you know, he could be a, a serviceable role player, so... I think it it was a great trade because Brooke Lopez was on an expiring contract, I believe, so they probably weren't going to re-sign him. Yeah, as uh, Jordan just said, I, I don't uh, mind Timothy Mozgov at all. Um, his contract is awful, um, obviously. <laughs> it's just reminding me, um, yesterday I was looking up the highest paid roster on the Brooklyn Nets at the moment is Alan Crabb, making 19, 18 mil a year. Um, that is almost like the biggest problem with the Nets at the moment is just these terrible handicapping contracts. But aside from that, they, they have some pieces and some interesting assets on their roster, but yeah, it's it's that thing of, and they probably won't be looking like anything until 2020. So let's actually talk about that Alan Crab trade, because that was a really confusing move in my mind. Because with Damari Carroll and Timofey Mozgov, the Nets got players who are probably close to league average rotation players. They're going to be playing bigger roles in Brooklyn than that, but they're decent role players on massive overpays of contract. What I don't get about the Alan Crabb deal is that this wasn't a salary dump like the Mozgov and Damari Carroll moves where the Nets also got some future assets in those trades. Alan Crabb, the Nets basically just got because they wanted Alan Crabb on the roster. And I guess it makes sense in light of the fact that Marks did offer Crabb the four-year $72 million offer sheet. 
But it still seems strange to me that the Nets' MO for basically the entire Sean Marks tenure has been, we want to trade everything we can on the current team for future assets so that we can start to really build this thing from the bottom up in 2019-2020. And I just don't see how Alan Crabb fits into that unless... Either Marks or Kenny Atkinson is just such a big fan of how Crab's shooting will fit into the Nets' offensive scheme that they were willing to pay him that contract. But it just doesn't really fit to me with the other salary dump moves that they made this summer. Well, they got rid of Andrew Nicholson, right? So he he was terrible, Nicholson. And it's not like Nicholson wasn't making anything. I think they saw that Alan Crabb is an NBA player. Yes, he's overpaid, but w- like, what what else were they gonna do? Like, it's it's just like we're adding talent and we're dumping a useless player. So I think that's that's how they saw it. Do either of you guys think that anyone on the Nets could average twenty points per game next year? D'Angelo Russell could if they just give him the ball every time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, um, he averaged just under 16 points per game in the last season, so he could definitely take a bit of a leap if given just the keys to the car, I guess. He also only played 28 minutes a game, and he better be playing more than 28 minutes a game next season for Brooklyn. The thing I wonder about, though, is how Russell will play next to Jeremy Lin. Um, I'm, I'm assuming they'll be all right together, but it's like two point guards. You never know how that's going to play out. I feel like D'Angelo is more of a combo guard. If anything, I'd put him as an SG, but that's just my two cents. Yeah, I agree with Luke. I think they're both kind of more combo guard-ish. People forgot that Jeremy Lin's year in Charlotte, he played almost entirely shooting guard alongside either Kemba or Brian Roberts, which, you know, says a lot about that year's Charlotte Hornets. Anyway, let's move on to the other New York team. And I think the biggest move of the Knicks offseason so far had nothing to do with the roster that they actually put out on the floor, but instead had to do with firing Phil Jackson in the most Knicksy way possible, namely agreeing to pick up the last two years of his contract in April and then firing him in July. It was truly a remarkable experience. Actually, no, it was late June, I believe. Tr- still truly remarkable. Well, I think they had to fire him. Like he was like there were reports he was contemplating trading Porzingis. Um, and if that was if that's true, that they had to fire him. There, there was no other way around it. Yeah, he was terrible by the end of his tenure. Um, I'm glad we've gotten rid of him. And from what I've read, I'm I'm looking forward to Scott Perry at the very least. I'm I'm not sure he'll be the savior of New York, but I, I get a better vibe from him than I ever did with Jackson. So as someone who just watched Scott Perry mend the reputation of one of the teams in the NBA with the worst reputations in the Kings, I think Scott Perry can be huge for New York just because everybody around the league respects Scott Perry. And there was honestly, I can't really think of a nicer way to say this, but there really wasn't any good reason to respect anybody in the Knicks front office until they got Scott Perry. So I think just that alone from, you know, upgrading from no agent in the NBA is willing to send their player to play for the Knicks because it's such a dumpster fire to, well, at least Scott Perry is running the place and pretty much everybody trusts that he knows what he's doing. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that. And I, I just wanted to say that I felt like Jackson always got too much credit for drafting Porzingis. I, I, I feel like that was way more of a like a shot in the dark than a, a carefully planned and articulated decision on his part. 
they just went for the player with the highest ceiling. Yeah, they took a risk, it panned out, and Jackson got to take credit for it. But, you know, in another life. If Sam Hinkie had taken Kristaps instead of Jaleel Okafor, and we'll get into that soon when we get to the Philadelphia section, but I feel like if... Hinky had taken Porzingis, then obviously Phil takes Jaleel because Jaleel was, people forget about this, but there was a legitimate debate about whether Jaleel was the best or the second best player in his class. Obviously, he's, you know, a little bit further down the list than that. But if Phil had taken Ja instead of Kristaps, I feel like he would have been out of there in New York within like six months. Probably. Um, you're definitely right about that. Like there was a a much more significant hype for Okafor and Towns than uh, I, I think Porzingis and Russell and even like Mario Hazonia at the time. Yeah, like I, I even had like Okafor over Towns going into that draft, and I, I just, I just look stupid now. So I can't, I can't really say anything about that. As for the the Knicks point guard situation, do you think the rookie will get to start? from day one or do you think he'll have to earn it i think he'll have to start from day one uh more so from like a like a getting reps kind of need more so than any like particular uh need to plug a hole. well i mean we do have a hole at point guard but uh the, the only other option who would be starting would be ramon sessions or ron baker i guess um you know not exactly picks the litter so just even just to get the young guy some experience i, I think they'll be starting frank Nilakina. But yeah, that, that's just my opinion. How do you feel about them taking him over Dennis Smith? Not great, but at the same time, it was like even before the last season ended, um, there was a lot of talks, uh, a lot of talk even on the um, like just like Nick's Reddit and like fan websites and stuff that uh, a big feeling within the front office that uh, Frank Nilakina was their guy going into the draft. Like or, or almost they hadn't considered anyone else regardless of what kind of lottery pick they were going to get. So it, it was one one of those things where it was almost like almost a foregone conclusion that they're going to tank Frank. Dennis Smith was never really an option, so I never got the opportunity to get hyped over him. And now, obviously, like with all these dunk videos and highlight videos he's putting out, I I, I get that opportunity to be like, ah, oh, the Knicks effed up again. But yeah, I, I think Dennis Smith will be pretty good, and I I hope Frank can at least he, he'll be a project. I think similar in ways to like Giannis Antetokounmpo or Porzingis. But um, I think he could be something. Yeah, I, I was shocked about not just the, the Knicks passing on Dennis Smith. I was shocked about like a lot of teams, like any team that could have potentially used a point guard, I think should have should have probably taken him. Like I, I had Dennis Smith on my board right after Fultz. I see the same like that drive and attack. But I think Neil Aquina, I think what he'll be able to do right away is play defense. And so I I think because of him being able to play defense probably from day one, that he can get minutes in the NBA. Yeah, no, I, I would definitely agree with that. I also just find it hard to believe that the Knicks are going to have any trouble filling those point guard minutes with Neil Kida because they don't really have many other options at point guard. So he's probably going to get a lot of playing time just because A, he's the future at that position, hopefully. But B, and more importantly, because there really isn't anybody else to challenge him for minutes, at least early in the season. Yeah, I was just saying before, the only other options are Ramon Sessions and Ron Baker at the moment. So he'll probably get some reps. All right, let's move on to the Philadelphia 76ers and the other side of that massive Boston Celtics trade. So that trade was 
certainly worth debating from the Celtics side, but I think this was a huge win for Philadelphia just because Markel Fultz is exactly what that team needed to get. And granted, they had to give up a probably pretty valuable future asset to do so, but moving up from three to one to get exactly the guy you need while also avoiding the problem that they would have had picking at three and having to choose someone who wouldn't be anywhere near as good of a fit for their roster. I think this trade was a huge, huge win for the Sixers, both next year and going forward. I think it's very interesting, because last year, all they were saying is that they're going to run Simmons at point guard. Um, he obviously didn't play at all due to injury. But if that if that was their plan, um, I think that plan has changed now that they have drafted Markel Fultz. The one, the one thing about um, the, the Fultz trade that I, that I find interesting is if they were to stay at three um, and, and keep that Lakers pick slash possibly Kings pick, is if they would have taken Dennis Smith there, and I think that would have been all right too. So I don't know. Yeah, I also really like the selection of Fultz. Um, I, I think he's a great point guard, a uh, good wingspan. Um, my only, I guess, it, it, it might even just be like a, not even a real concern, is just whether he can stay healthy. I know he's already been injured in the summer league. He had to sit out the uh, rest of it after only playing a few games. So I, I just hope that he can stay healthy and stay on the court. And if so, then yeah, he's a great pick. That's really the only question that matters for the Sixers team going forward, because if all three of their young guys in Embiid, Simmons, and Markel Fultz are healthy going forward, then this team could be a perennial contender pretty quickly. But if none of them are healthy, then it sort of all goes down the drain. But... What definitely doesn't get lost in the discussion, because there will always be people who want to talk about Sam Hankey, is that now that he's been out of the Philadelphia front office for a year and a half, it's occasionally hard to remember that all of this is because of the process and because of that tanking plan. And granted, there were ways in which that was a huge problem for the NBA just because of how blatantly Hinky was tanking and that one in 30 stretch for Philly certainly didn't help with that perception. But it is interesting to note that Basically, everything Hinky did is about to either pay off in a huge way for Sixers fans or end in absolute disaster. What I find fascinating is that Brian Colangelo might be getting the credit for some of this, whereas when he was GM with the Raptors, the team, the core kind of looked similar because we had Lowry and DeRozan, and then... Masai takes over as GM and the team suddenly gets good and Masai gets all the credit for that. So I think it's just like an interesting paradox. It helped that Masai traded Rudy Gay away pretty quickly. That probably did a lot to make the Raptors better. And I say that as someone who has really enjoyed watching Rudy Gay play for the last few seasons, incredibly unexpectedly. (laughs) But the Fultz trade is clearly the big move of Philadelphia summer. But JJ Redick is also an excellent fit 
for the Sixers team. And that starting group of Fultz, Simmons, Embiid, JJ Redick, and Robert Covington is a group that not only fits really well with basically any team, but fit really well with each other. And Ben Simmons's lack of any form of jump shot will at least be helped by having one of the best jump shooters in the league running around screens and getting pin downs and stretching the defense. So the other useful thing about the Reddit contract is that because it's only for one year, the Sixers can either bring him back next season if it works out really well, or if the team sort of falls apart and they don't need to pay $23 million to a 33-year-old, they can let him go without any skin off their back. Yeah, the one thing, though, I will say about the Sixers is, aside from J.J. Redick, they don't really have a lot of good three-point shooters, so I think a lot is going to rest on him this season, and he's aging, so I don't know how his body will hold up, whether his skills will diminish a little bit. Yeah, his ability to run around screens and get those open shots might have taken a bit of a back step now that he's, you know, on the wrong side of 30. But I still very much agree with it. He, the fact that he's a great pickup, um, definitely provides some spacing, um, some, you know, much needed shooting for whenever, like, you know, he shares the floor with Simmons and Rob Covington. But um, yeah, at, at the very least, he's got a very flexible contract, which means you can bring him back or let him go. And it's, it doesn't have that much of an effect either way. Um, but yeah, I, I very much like the pickup of Redick on the sixes as well. I mean, Redick is getting older, but then again, he's going into his age 34 season and Kyle Korver was an all-star in his age 34 season. So, hey, you never know. All right, moving on to the last team in this division, the Toronto Raptors, and they got both Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka to come back to Toronto, but more importantly, neither of them signed a five-year deal, and neither of them signed for a max contract, and both of those things, I think, will be vital for Toronto's flexibility going forward. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. I think if they were to sign those five-year maxes, things definitely would have gone bad in like year three or year four. Now, if it starts to go bad in year three, you know you'll be off that those contracts. And the Raptors needed to keep Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka. They just, like, there was no way to replace Kyle Lowry. It's not like they could have signed an equivalent point guard um, due to the cap situations. With the bird rights, they could they could pay their own guys. Um, and with, with Ibaka, too, people, people don't realize that the, the Raptors now don't have any, you know, legit power forward behind him. He, he's the guy. They, need, they needed him, especially with the, the loss of Patterson now. You would have to assume that the reason why these, uh, these three-year deals were a thing instead of the max contracts is that it gives them the flexibility to be like, okay, if we haven't won anything in the next three years, it's time to blow it up. Which, uh, which is another question of like, do you also see the Raptors beating Golden State or Cleveland in their current state, um, their current construction over the next three years? And I, I, I don't know. I, my, I, I'm leaning on the side of probably not. Um, even a, a fully healthy, fully stacked Raptors team, I, I couldn't see them beating, uh, let's say, Cleveland or Golden State in a seven-game series. So you, like, I'm thinking they, they're giving themselves flexibility to to I guess like close the book on it in a few years time and get ready to rebuild again um they just kind of like almost paying lip service to the fans of like well we're we're really trying to put the best product out there for you guys but I I think in 
I think they've kind of realized that yeah, they're not beating the top dogs in their current in their current construction. Well, uh, what I will say is we don't know that LeBron will be on the Cavs next season, and and if he's not, I think the Raptors then have a path uh, hypothetically where they could get to the finals. Are they beating the Warriors? No. Is is anybody beating the Warriors? I don't know, but I I don't think twenty nine teams should be tanking um, just because the the Warriors are going to be the favorite every year. This is also the classic line that everybody trumpets in these kind of situations, but all it takes is one injury. I mean, LeBron James tweaks an ankle in the first round playoff series, can't play for the rest of the playoffs. All of a sudden, Toronto's got a pretty wide avenue to get to the finals, and then once they get to the finals, maybe Steph Curry and KD both get injured in an off-road ATV incident or something, and... They maybe have a chance, but again, it's helpful that the Raptors will once again be a playoff team, given that for most of their history, really, they've been on the outside looking into the playoff picture. Uh, one last question about, regarding the Raptors. Um, could you see them beating Boston? I, I I could. The Raptors actually matched up well against Boston last year. I believe when um, Kyle Lowry was out, the Raptors actually beat the Celtics. Uh, during the regular season and the Celtics like I mentioned previously have trouble on the glass um, so I, I don't think that necessarily the Celtics are better than the Raptors when they're playing against each other I think on paper when you compare them to other teams I think the the Celtics are probably better but I don't know I, I think in a, in a seven game series the Raptors would have a shot against the Celtics yeah no I, I could definitely see that as well um and yeah, as you said, it, it just takes one injury or one little thing to happen to change the landscape completely. So you do never know. Um, but yeah, yeah, just my thoughts. And Jordan already brought this up, but for both the Cavs and the Celtics, but particularly for the Celtics, who again are returning four players from last year's roster, they're entirely an on-paper team at this point. They could come out the gates hot and Gordon Hayward and Kyrie Irving mesh perfectly together and they win 60 games or Gordon Hayward and Kyrie Irving don't do anything but get in each other's way and Kyrie gets upset that he has to actually lead the offense as opposed to letting LeBron do it 99% of the time we don't know it's and I think that's one of the reasons that the Celtics are such an interesting team to follow next season is because their range of outcomes is just so wide and wider, I think, than almost any other team in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, I think with the Celtics, my my questions is Kyrie Irving so much better than Isaiah Thomas. Isaiah Thomas had an incredible season, um, and I think Kyrie is probably better but I, I don't know how much better he is. And then how much how much better is uh, Gordon Hayward than Avery Bradley? I think Hay- Hayward's definitely better, but I think people are underrating uh, what Avery Bradley was doing for the Celtics defensively. And then last year, I think pre-All-Star break, uh, offensively, he was pretty good. I could definitely see uh, something happening to the Celtics, what kind of happened to the Knicks last year, where... The few games they won um, at the start of the season and against respectable teams, they did so via individual talents. 
um, rather than like, you know, any sense of like team chemistry or like buying into the system. Like it would be, you know, D Rose ignoring Porzingis and Melo clapping for the ball and just powering his way to the rim or Melo, uh, you know, getting buckets off doing like Melo ISO foot jabs, whatever. Um, but but it, we won games, but it wasn't through like, you know, a team effort. It was largely just through individuals coming through. And obviously that kind of, you know, ran out of steam like 20, 25 games into the season. Um, so I, I could definitely see the Celtics, uh, you know, initially maybe having some problems with, you know, Kyrie just dribbling the ball into the ground, uh, Al Horford not being able to rebound for the line of him um just, just problems with team chemistry um no one buying in and just relying on individual talents to carry them through it, it, like i saw it happen with new york so i could definitely see it happening with the celtics yeah i i think the celtics um will eventually ha- just have to like there's t- there's too much talent there like for things not to end up being it like it at least kind of where they were last year. Um, and I think Brad Stevens is a good coach. So I, I think they'll eventually figure it out. But I think from day one, like if they start off the season like four four and six or something, I think no nobody should panic. All right. So let's move from looking at the offseason to looking at the season ahead. And I wanted to go through one big question for each of the teams in the Atlantic division. So let's start again with the Celtics. What chance do you guys think the Celtics have of being the number one seed again next season? I personally think that it's unlikely only because they really outperformed their expected win total last year, mostly because of Isaiah Thomas's fourth quarter heroics. But in any case, they're bringing in an almost completely new roster, and they probably exceeded where they should have been last season anyway. But then again, the Cavaliers aren't really going to try all that hard, and I think that the Wizards and the Raptors are sort of in that next tier below the Cavs and the Celtics, but do you guys think the Celtics have a shot at the top seed next year? I think probably not, I would say. I, I think uh, the, the Cavs definitely underachieved last year, and I think LeBron is going to make it actually make a mission during the regular season to say, hey, I didn't need Kyrie, like being upset that he wanted out and left. And I, I think LeBron LeBron's going to go on a tear. I think the Cavs are going to at least win 55 games. I don't even think, I don't think 60 wins is off the table for the Cavs, and I think the Celtics are probably more likely to be around 50 wins. Um, I could definitely see the Celtics getting the number one seed again. I, I don't think the Cavs can get 60 wins this season. Um, I don't see it happening. I think 50, 55 is more in the, um, more in the estimate. Um, another thing is that I didn't really, I don't really see how the Cavs got better than in this offseason, um, particularly when you compare it to the Celtics. Um, so I, I could definitely see reason for the Celtics to get the number one seed again over the Cavs. Um, but again, it's that, you know, famous uh, sentence or whatever just anything can happen all it takes is one injury one trade to happen but yeah I I think the Celtics definitely have an opportunity to get the number one seed again so now on to the Raptors and my biggest question about the Raptors is 
will they host their first round playoff series? Will they be a home court advantage team? And I would say that I would lean 55-45 in favor of Toronto being either the three or four seed. I think really the biggest question for them is going to be whether Giannis takes another leap forward enough for the Bucks to surpass Toronto next year. But the Bucks are also going to be without Jabari Parker. And granted, they played pretty well down the stretch of last season without Jabari Parker because his absence coincided literally directly with Chris Middleton's return. It was the same game that Jabari got injured. But what are you guys' thoughts on Toronto's odds of being one of the top four seeds next year? I think they're most definitely going to be a top four seed. I have them in the two to four range. Um, I think Boston and Cleveland are probably better. Um, I, I'd have the Raptors slight hair ahead of the Wizards. Everyone thinks the Raptors are going to take this massive step backwards, uh, but now they're going to have Serge Ibaka for a full season. Um, they were they were quite good post All Star break with Serge Ibaka, and that was with, when Kyle Lowry was out. So um, I'm optimistic about that. And the one thing I don't understand: um, what what did the Wizards do this off season to to get better? Like. I think their bench, the Wizards' bench is still bad, and I, I think the depth matters, especially during the regular season. So I, I don't, I don't see um, how there's this, the not the same questions about the Wizards. I think in terms of the Wizards, it's partially that they're expecting John Wall and Bradley Beal to take another step. I'm not as sure about Wall, but Beal is still only 23 and had by far the best year of his career last year. So we're about to find out whether that's indicative of his future or whether that was a one-year outlier type of performance. But in terms of the bench, I think really the only thing there is that they went from almost historically awful to just plain bad. And that will probably make a pretty sizable difference for them next season. But I would agree with Jordan. I think the Raptors are probably still a hair better if they can stay healthy for the full season. But I think the Raptors and the Wizards are really close. I think the Cavs and the Celtics are really close in the tier above them. And Milwaukee could be anything from, honestly, from the second seed to the eighth seed in my mind. It just depends on how good Giannis can be how quickly. Can I just say one quick thing about the Bucks? Um they played the Raptors really well at the, at the start of the series, uh, especially over the first three games of that first round series. But I, I think a lot of people are putting a lot of weight into that that series is why the Bucks are going to get better, That how, how great everyone looked. But it's important to note, um, if you look who the Raptors have played in the playoffs in previous seasons, um, I think... Was it the the Nets? Was it th- three or four years ago? The Raptors lost in seven to the Nets, and then the the following season, the Nets weren't very good. Um, and then the next year, they got swept by the Wizards. The following year, the Wizards uh, d- failed to make the playoffs. Um, and then uh, two years ago, when they uh, played against the Pacers in the first round, that series was competitive. Um, and p- some people thought the Pacers would get better with the with the moves they made the Pacers didn't actually get better and then the second round the Raptors uh played the the heat that series was competitive um and Miami only got worse the the following year all right moving on to the Philadelphia 76ers and we already talked about this a little bit 
But my main question for the Sixers is a pretty basic one. Do you guys think that they are a playoff team next year? And I personally think that they're going to be somewhere in the 7 to 10 range with the possibility that they're a little bit better if Joel Embiid could be healthy for most of the season. And also the possibility that they're one of the worst teams in the East if everybody gets hurt. And it's impossible to predict injuries, but with a team like the Sixers, you can at least assume that there's a pretty solid chance that one of their main guys is going to be hurt for at least some portion of the season, because that's been the case for the last four years. I think with the Sixers, it's interesting. I think it's probably going to be hard for them to take that leap into the playoffs. But at the same time, I don't know who's getting that ace spot in the East. Uh, The Sixers might not get to 500, but they might not need to to get that ace seed. I would be shocked if the eighth seed in the Eastern Conference this season is 500 or better. I just, I don't see how enough teams in the East are going to be good enough to get to that mark, just given how much stronger the Western Conference is now. And also, not to mention that three of the East's playoff teams from last season traded away or let their best player leave this summer. And those three teams in Chicago, Indiana, and Atlanta are going to go from the bottom half of the playoff picture to the bottom probably five honestly maybe the maybe the Pacers can be in the bottom 10 but those three teams are going to be really bad next year and all three of them were playoff teams last year yeah um the one thing I, I will say is I think the the Hornets and the Heat I think they're gonna get back in the playoffs but yeah I think I think that that third team to get in maybe it's the Pistons maybe it's the Sixers maybe it's someone else I don't know I could definitely see uh, Philly getting into the playoffs uh, yeah, as the eighth seed. Um, it is that, like, as Nick was saying, you can't predict injuries, but you can be pretty sure that like, at least at some point in the season, something's going to happen to a player in Philly. More than anything else, I think it relies on the... Um, the, the trashiness of the other teams in the East uh, as to whether Philly will be in the playoffs or not. Um, on paper, definitely, absolutely, they've got the personnel and I think the talent to make it work. Um, it's just the, all those other externalities. Let's move on to the Brooklyn Nets, who played a pretty big part in the Cavs-Celtics trade, despite you know not actually being actively involved in the deal, because, of course, it was the last of those picks that Danny Ainge managed to steal from them, which will finally convey this season. So my question on the Nets is, can they move outside of the top five in the lottery? And I hope I don't sound too homerish when I say this, but I think the Nets are probably going to be somewhere between the fifth and eighth worst record in the NBA next year. And I think there are two main reasons for that. The first one is the very obvious one, namely, they're not in the Western Conference. So they get to play a lot weaker of a schedule than, say, the Phoenix Suns or the Sacramento Kings. And that will certainly help their record. But the other point that I think tends to get lost in the shuffle when people talk about the Nets is that last year, when Jeremy Lin was actually in the lineup, they were a 30-win team. Without him, they had no one at point guard, and they were disastrously bad. But Jeremy Lin has never missed as much time in a season as he did last year, and unlike with the Sixers, it seems harder to predict that Lin is again going to miss the vast majority of the season, and even if he does, they at least 
have D'Angelo Russell, who is clearly the star of the future and is probably already about as good as Lynn, just in different ways, but clearly has a much brighter future. I think the big issue with the Nets is just going to be that there are two players on their roster next season that are taller than 6'10", and they are Tyler Zeller and Timothy Moskov. So they're going from Brooke Lopez, who's a really underrated center, to an absolute mess in the front court. But at least their offense will be able to operate with real point guards as opposed to last year when second round pick rookie Isaiah Whitehead started a lot of games at point guard because the Nets just didn't have anybody else. Lynn got injured very early in the year and Grievous Vasquez, who was supposed to be the backup, got injured almost immediately. But what are you guys' thoughts on where the Nets might end up at the end of next year? Um, I think they're definitely going to be better than they were last year, but I don't think it's going to be by a lot. I think they're going to miss Brooke Lopez a little bit and uh I think I just think there's 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 a lot of role players, but not just a lot of lot of like star talent yet on the team. Uh, but the one thing I will say is that th- since they don't own their pick, they're not going to tank. They're not going to try to lose games. So when you're tr- when you're trying to win every game, um, you know you're gonna you're gonna do better than the teams trying to lose. Yeah, I also see them being pretty pretty terrible this year um they're definitely not going to be better than the next just by virtue of having no scorers um yeah at, at the same time um they are going to miss brook lopez i i don't think as much as they probably missed jeremy lynn having all that time off last year um i, I think the the need just to run the offense is probably going to be more pertinent than just having a, a you know offensively versatile big man on the court um so I think they'll be a shade better than they were last year, but but only that, like just fractionally better. They are at least a lot deeper of a team than they were last year, which I think at least precludes some of the absolute disaster potential that they had last year, where in the middle of the year during that stretch where Lynn was gone, during the early part of that stretch, they were just abysmal. I don't think they're going to have that problem next year. I don't think they're going to be good, for sure. I want to make sure I get that out of the way. I don't think they're going to be a playoff team. I don't think they really have much of a shot at all of being a playoff team, if I'm being completely honest but i really really strongly doubt that they will end up with the worst record in the nba next season and i think it's pretty doubtful that they're in the bottom three even because i think chicago phoenix and atlanta are significantly worse than them but let's move on to the question that luke touched on briefly And I promise I didn't put that question in just to annoy him. But the question was, will the Knicks be worse than the Nets next season? And I want to clarify that question right off the bat. That assumes that Carmelo Anthony is either bought out or traded, if not before the season starts, then very, very early on in the season. And once they trade away Carmelo, on the one hand, it's great that they get to build around Kristaps Porzingis. On the other hand, the problem that the Nets had all of last season, namely complete lack of experienced and or competent point guards with Jeremy Lin out, is going to dog the Knicks all year next year. And the difference there is that the Knicks can't even hope to have their version of Jeremy Lin come back 
with some of the season left to go, come back after the All-Star break because they just don't have that kind of player on their roster. Yeah, I, I, I just don't see Anthony being traded at this point. I, I think it's just it would be a completely fitting end to all this, uh, you know, just like stop-start trade rumors. Um, it, it would just be too ironic for him to end up in, like, you know, in the same place that he never left. Um so I think Anthony stays on for the season. It, it, I guess it's one of those things where it, it, it's like it, it, it would be better if he – it would be, yeah, absolutely better if he, you know, was traded. We got some value back, but that's just not going to happen now. We saw what happened in midway through the season uh, with the uh, Los Angeles Clippers rumors, the fact that, like, the Knicks were entertaining trade ideas that it was going to work out to be mellow for Austin Rivers and a second rounder. Uh, the guy's value has completely torpedoed at this point, so I think it's just it would work out better for the Knicks if they kept him on, despite the horrible treatment he's received from the front office over the past years. Um, I wouldn't blame him for leaving. Um but yeah, so I, I think the Knicks being better than the Nets uh, this year um, is is in you know runs in accordance with my belief that Anthony will be staying for the coming season. Uh, re- regardless, I would say the Knicks are probably going to be better than the Nets. But what I will say is, I think the Nets will be a fun team to watch. I really enjoy watching Karis LeVert. Uh, I'm really high on him. I think he's going to be exciting to watch. I think D'Angelo Russell, watching him grow, I think that's going to be exciting. Um, and I think it's going to be exciting to watch Damari Carroll just struggle again and not have it be blamed on the Raptors system. It is interesting to note that after all the talk of Hawks University and them just, you know, growing these wing players into great, competent players on the wing... And then as soon as Damari Carroll leaves, he falls off a cliff. And as soon as Kent Bazemore signed that big contract, he also sort of fell off a cliff. So it is worth noting that there is a history of Hawks wing players being really good when they're on the Hawks and being really bad when they're anywhere else. Let's wrap up by looking a bit further into the future. So I sort of thought of this question with some season between the 2020 season and the 2022 season in mind. So in three to five years, do you think the Celtics will be the cream of the crop of the Atlantic division? Do you think the Sixers will be the cream of the crop of the Atlantic division? Or do you think there's a surprise contender out there? I think it can be the Celtics. I believe they still have a bunch of picks. Um, so I think if they're able to, to, to flip one of those, those picks or you know a couple of those picks, and bring in another star, I think then they're going to be in business. Um, but in, in, until then, eh, I think it's like they're just like everybody else. I think else. Philly can be the, the top dogs in a few years' time. Um, if, contradictory to what I said before, uh, no more injuries happen to their squad from now on. Uh, no one has another like little ankle tweak or another... Um, like there's, for, for whatever reason, for whatever, I, I don't know, they're... If they can just get that like monkey off their back, they absolutely, I think, have the player potential to be a, an incredible squad a few years from now, but they just can't stop getting injured. Uh, the one thing I will say about Philly is that uh, at some point, they're going to have to start paying all these young guys. And I, bl- I believe Embiid, I'm not sure if he's a free agent this coming summer or next year, but that'll be interesting seeing how much money they tie up with him. And then if they're starting to tie up money with these young players, then how will they bring in new talent? All right. Anything else you guys want to go over before we wrap up? Sports Illustrated, the uh, ranking DeRozan 36. That still, it still bothers me. 
He's he's a clear cut all star at this point. He just had a career year. Um, he was I believe he was All NBA third team. Like it, it bothers me. I was just gonna say that ESPN thing with uh putting Lonzo Ball over Carmelo Anthony before the guys even played an NBA game. Like come on, come on. Both of those rankings are pretty ridiculous, but I think the Lonzo one spot ahead of Carmelo Anthony and 63rd in the NBA before having even played a single game is absurd. I think it's almost even more absurd that somehow on that same list, Markel Fultz was 86, so 23 spots behind the guy he was drafted in front of, and 23 spots behind the guy who was pretty much universally thought of as the number two pick behind the basically consensus besides Danny Ainge number one pick in Markel Fultz. I think they were looking at fantasy projections because I think fantasy-wise, Lonzo is probably going to be a good player because he's going to rack up a lot of assists. But like, as you said, in reality, we have no idea. Like, like it, it could it like rookie of the year could be John Collins. We we don't know. I am so here for John Collins becoming rookie of the year and just absolutely dunking all over everybody. Not just because John Collins dunking all over everybody is fun, but I just cannot wait to see how the Lakers fans would set the world on fire if John Collins wins rookie of the year over Lonzo Ball. Well, uh, the Lakers seem to think that the their fan base thinks that they're getting Paul George and LeBron James next year. So, um, if if they have that thinking, uh, I I don't think they should be worried. But they always have that thinking, though. That's part of being a Lakers fan is irrational optimism <laughs> that all of the top ten players are going to be on your team just next year or the year after. But soon, soon the Lakers are going to have every good player in the NBA. The sad part is that history has kind of showed them to be pretty disturbingly accurate in that line of thinking um as an australian guy who obviously doesn't deal with the average lakers fan on a you know near enough basis as you guys what is the the lakers fan stereotype well what i, what I always see in a, an american media i'm canadian but i always see the lakers getting these like primetime games getting christmas games when they're not good and it bothers me um and i i never i never liked them when they were good because they were all they were always over overhyped um and always promoting kobe and shaq and it's just it's just too much at a certain point it it just it just gets annoying like i want to watch other teams i can't be expected to be objective when talking about the lakers as a kings fan but the biggest issue that i have with lakers fans and sort of laker fandom in general is that lakers fans and celtics fans sort of always think that their team is going to win everything you know maybe it's two years from now but they just always expect to be near the top of their respective conferences the only difference is that los angeles is four times bigger than boston and is also a lot closer to where i'm living right now so more of a pertinent problem two two years from now is good i mean it's better than being two years from being two years away shout out to bruno And now that we've finally gotten back to talking about something that's at least vaguely related to the Atlantic Division, let's wrap things up here. So you can find Jordan at 416Basketball on Twitter. You can find Luke on Twitter at BurritoRain. You can also find both of their work as well as mine on the hashtag basketball website. 
If you've been enjoying the podcast or if you have any notes, please feel free to let me know. You can reach out to me via email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. You can also feel free to send me a message on Twitter at nbajohnson. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. It really helps us spread the word, and we would really appreciate it. And as always, thanks so much for listening.